Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become greedier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Ladies and gentlemen, I wanted to provide a quick context for my next interview. You will hear my conversation with Orb Greenwald, my dear friend and my swim coach. We sat in his backyard by the pool exactly a week after the memorial for his beloved wife, Cory. Cory died from cancer two months ago. It is an emotional interview for both him and for me, but it's a well-worthy listen. Without further ado. So you currently train and coach swimming in the Special Warfare Program at Lackland Air Force Base, and you have a long list of accomplishments, which are very impressive. In 1967, 1968, and 69, you were three-time All-American water polo champion in University of California in Berkeley. You represented the United States in the 1975 World Modern Pentathlon Championship and won silver medal. You won the military championship in 1973 and national championship in 1975. You were the member of the U.S. Olympic team in 1976 and team gold medalist in the military championships in Stockholm. And this year you're going to the Aqua Bike World Championship in Denmark. Yes. Is, is that it or is there something else that I'm, that I'm not mentioning? And I'm the co- swim coach of Anya. And you're, you're my swim coach. And, and I joke about it that I, you, I'm probably your most profound swimming failure. <laughs> no, because when you started, remember, you couldn't swim 25 meters without stopping. Yeah. So and when so, you finished up, you could swim 3,000. Easy. Yeah, so, so I do have a story that I have to share. I signed up for half Ironman, and I barely could swim. And I am a pretty decent runner, and I'm, I'm okay on the bike, but I really have poor swimming skills. So... I remember our friend, our mutual friend, Dale Landis introduced us. He's, he's an amazing massage therapist here in San Antonio. He said, why don't you go talk to Orb? You know, he may be able to help you. So I came to you. You said, get in the pool and do a lap. I said, okay, I did a lap. Okay, do another one. I did a lap. And then you said, okay, I'll see you tomorrow at 5.20 <laughs> a.m. <laughs> do you remember this? I do. Yeah. yeah. And so... And you started training me, and you didn't ask a lot of questions. You just said, get on the pool and let's do this. Uh, and this was a very different approach from everybody else. You very much kind of hands-on, just get on the pool, let's do this, let's do this together. And, and, I'll, and I'll instruct you every, every step of the way, or every stroke of the way. <laughs> so, um, that's, and that's how we, we met. And then you've been just an amazing friend and great coach and a great supporter. And, and we bike together. And, and we trained the two Air Force majors at together that swam the English Channel. We did, yeah. <laughs> you, were support, you were team support out there in the lake 
yeah, early in the morning yeah, out in Burning Lake. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, things that you taught me, like how to put on a wetsuit when you swim, right? <laughs> so. Well, I've been the swim coach there for 15 years, training what's now called the Special Warfare students who will go on to become special operators, either combat controllers, pararescue men, tactical air party controllers. And, and you've been in the same location for the last 15 years. Tell me a little bit about your job. Um, what does it entail? It means for the different career fields, we do things a little bit differently and we train the students at whatever level they're at. So if they go into the basic combat control selection course, we train them in surface swimming techniques so they can pass an evaluation at the end of two weeks. Pararescue men go through an eight-week training program where they have evaluations every week. So the training is more intense and it's longer because their first evaluation in swimming is 500 meters. At the end of eight weeks, they have to swim 3,000 meters. Combat controllers only have to do 500 meters. So it's pretty intense during those two weeks. So I designed the, the swimming programs for those different career fields. And pretty much once they're in place, they're pretty simple. I mean, a monkey could pretty much do it because they're all written down, and that's what a lot of what pararescue does. I wrote those workouts a long time ago. They've been modified a little bit since, but they're basically the same. And then we have students that are called um, setbacks or students awaiting training that we're keeping them in shape to go on to combat control school or students have been set back to go back into pararescue or combat control. So they get maintained, not a lot of real strenuous training, we just try to keep them at a level. Or if they were a swim failure, then we really work on improving their swimming skills in both freestyle and what we call side kicking or leading arm, trailing arm. And how many hours a day do they spend swimming? Each program will spend at least an hour swimming and then they'll do about an hour of also what's called water confidence training. Learning how to swim underwater, mask and snorkel recovery, buddy breathing, equipment recovery. So just basic water confidence skills, treading water. So since the, the time that you've been there for 15 years, do you, would you say that there is any change in the students that you've seen? They're about the same. We have huge attrition. You know, it's anywhere from 80 to maybe 95%, depending on the class. So we get a lot of students that aren't qualified. They get told the wrong thing. They get misled about what's going to happen here, the intensity of the training. So many of them come here unprepared physically. And then when we get into the mental part of the, the game, they'll quit. This isn't what they signed up for. So the harassment, um, it's just too much for some of them. Mm. We're kind of jumping straight into this, but I'm really curious, and I know we've had this discussion. I asked you before, what is the difference between students who make it and who don't make it? And, and you had actually a pretty good answer. You said there you know, a couple of things. Do you remember what you told me? That's the will to win. Guys that have that killer instinct you're not actually going to go out and kill something, but that killer instinct, the drive to, to, to be the best, to not fail, those are the ones that will make it. It doesn't so much matter your athletic background. Some wrestlers do really well. Some elite swimmers, which we've had, don't make it at all. 
We had a guy by the name of Paul Ridgeway a few years ago who was second to Michael Phelps in the short course nationals in 2006. He was a several time All-American swimmer at University of Texas, which has the premier swimming program in the country right now. He didn't make it. Hmm. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter so much on your athletic ability, it's on your, your will to survive and fight and win another day. Why do you think some people have it and others don't? What is it about that, that instinct? That's interesting. You can take these guys and you can give them the skills. You can teach them how to swim. You can teach them how to swim underwater. You can teach them how to scuba dive. You can teach them how to use their weapons and all of the things that they need in their various career fields. But you can't teach them the will to win, the drive to fight to go another day. I think that's something you either have or you don't have. I, don't, I can't teach you how to be that warrior on the battlefield. I think that's what you bring to the party. Mm. Can we can develop that? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, where maybe a student didn't know he had that, and going through the training, I think he can develop it. But he brought that. That's not that's not part of the curriculum. We're going to teach you how to be a combat controller that's going to rain hell down on everybody. Mm-hmm. That's we don't teach that. Mm-hmm. Do you know right away? Do you feel like you have a pretty good instinct about who is going to make it or not? No. Once you watch them watch their training, you see their demeanor, their attitude, you can pretty much pick the ones that are going to make it. Not always, but most of the time. Um, as they get into a few days of training, just how they handle the pressure, uh, you know, they come out of basic training and it's like they left their common sense there. <laughs> they, they can't think for themselves anymore. And that's true of most of the guys except the cross trainees, the older ones. The younger ones, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, it's like there's certain procedures that we go through and they show up the next day and they forget because they're so afraid of screwing up. That fear of failure is really big with them. How do you counteract that? I mean, I guess they all come in wanting to succeed, right? They all come in, they all, all want to do absolutely best. They probably prepared for this. How do we help them? I don't think that's true anymore. A lot of them come in and they find out this isn't what they signed up for. They know that right away. And this what we have a it's called Battlefield Airman Training Group. And when they go to a place called BA Prep, that's a special new eight week course designed to help them get either through the selection, combat control selection course or pararescue indoc. And after eight weeks of that, a lot of them say, I don't want to go to another eight weeks at INDOC. So they get burned out. It wasn't what they wanted to do. So they quit. It's called SIE, Student Initiated Elimination. Many of them are gone. Mm-hmm. Because when they get here and find out that the recruiter misled them, or it was too difficult, or they want to do something else, or they got involved with a girlfriend, or they did something stupid with drugs or alcohol, those are big eliminations still. Something interesting, actually, when I was here last week, uh, I chatted with one of your friends, and he's mentioned this also, that a lot of failures have to do with guys not being fully in, and one of the things that become a distraction is developing a relationship, you know, dating somebody. Is that your experience also? Yes, and on the other hand, we have guys come in that are married, mm-hmm. and they do quite well. They're in a stable relationship. The wife supports them. You know, which is a smart thing to do. 
if you're not supporting your husband in what he wants to do in life, you're, you're setting yourself up for a bad marriage. So the smart women figure that out and they will support them. And I know some really happily married couples that have, the guys have come through here, and many of them have been honor grads. You know, they're outstanding students. It's the guy that has the girlfriend back home um, and he misses her. We had a case probably in 2005. He's from Colorado, he went home for Christmas exodus, found out that his best friend was dating his girlfriend, became very distraught, bought a one-way ticket to Acapulco and committed suicide. Wow. So extreme cases like that happen. But many of them will just quit. You know, I gotta go and be with my girlfriend. And then there's other people that have, uh, you know, death in the family, grandparents, especially with kids this age. Um, some of them are affected and some of them just push right on through. Those are the guys that make good operators. They can handle the uh, effects of those personal losses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So why did I get it? Why my did brother you? didn't get as much. I don't know. I, it was something that just happened for me. It's, one of the things I was blessed with in life, I think. Yeah, let's shift gears, and I, I really wanted to ask you about this. I mean, you're quite an accomplished athlete. Really, it's a it's a privilege to know you and to be trained by you. Um, Thank you. Yeah, and I know your brother was also a water polo player. Very good one. Very good one, and he ended up not becoming as successful as you are. And from what I understood, maybe last Saturday speaking to him, maybe he was on some level better water polo player. He was on a team in junior college that had an undefeated season, and that's almost unheard of at that level. And his team and one of his former coaches and my coach were a few years ago in, inducted into the College Hall of Fame for having an undefeated season. He was good at, at that level, at the college level. He was pretty good. He was a goalie. I mean, he was an outstanding goalie, but he wasn't a, a very good swimmer. That's why he was in the what we call in the cage, in the goal. But Gene, great guy, career in law enforcement, doesn't have that drive to the same level that I do. Why? I don't know. We came out of the same place. Is there any difference that you can think of? He was the second child. Um, My dad expected a lot from me. He was a very staunch German. A strict disciplinarian. When I screwed up, he took his belt off and came after me. <laughs> Looking back, you know, I don't think it affected me adversely. That's just the way he disciplined me. <laughs> Gene didn't push like I did, so he didn't get the belt. And I was always pushing the, the envelope, pushing him, pushing him. Your dad? Yeah. And that's, I think, where I got my drive to succeed in whatever, sports. Was your dad encouraging those? I mean, that sounds what we would today call abusive. No, he was, a, he was a good athlete. He played football and ran track in college. And because of the depression, he wasn't able to pursue his athletic career. He would have qualified for the Olympic trials, I think, in 1928 or 32, somewhere in there. But because he had to go to work due to the depression to support his family, he couldn't continue to train. But his mother and father never, ever saw him compete, not once. He never missed a game. He never missed a baseball game. Your game. My games. My water polo games or swim meets. My dad was always there. So he, he really supported you? Oh, yeah. He went out of his way to be there. 
and my mom too. And your mom too. Yeah, my mom was my number one cheerleader, and then Cordy was my next number one cheerleader. Yeah. Do you think that made a big difference that they were so supportive? Oh yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, when you do something and you look up in the stands and you see your parents grinning and hooping and hollering and clapping, yeah, it reinforces that you did something good. And I think one of the, the basic drives that men have is from the time they're little boys is they ask a question. And the question is, am I good enough? Am I good enough to make the team? Am I good enough to win the girl? Am I good enough to whatever it is, guys... And that's the, the operators I work with, they're young guys, they're still asking the question, they're still insecure, they still wonder if they're good enough. So their egos are in the way a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. You've seen that, you've been around them. Yeah. You know, and on the other hand, what do the girls ask? The girls, when they're, since they're little girls, they want to know, you know what that question is? They're asking, am I pretty? Mm -hmm. Am I acceptable? Mm -hmm. You know, am I pretty? That's what the girls want to know. Mm -hmm. So... The guys always ask that question. Not the girls that I train. <laughs> well, when you're little girls, you're, mommy, am I pretty? Girls want to know if they're desirable. Yeah. You know, look at the cosmetic business. I mean, yeah. wouldn't be that way if women didn't want to be desirable to men or whoever they want to be desirable to. Mm -hmm. So did you get a scholarship to go to University yes. of Berkeley? I had an athletic scholarship. Athletic scholarship. Um, and I know a little bit, but but I'll let you I'll let you tell the story. So you were recruited because you played a water polo, essentially, and swam. And swam. I got recruited to do both. Okay. Um, and then, how did you end up qualifying for Olympics and becoming an active duty? You were intelligence well, officer in the army. Vietnam was going at that time when I was in college, and the draft was still on. So my mom and dad are both World War II veterans. They encouraged me to get into ROTC. So I said, sure. So I was, got into a four-year Army ROTC program. It was interesting for me, at, being at Berkeley at that time, I was on an athletic scholarship in ROTC and lived in a fraternity house. Not your typical Berkeley student. But it worked. I got my commission as a military intelligence officer. Back then, my Did you brain, want to become an intelligence officer? Yes. Yeah. How come? It just appealed to me. You know, uh, so I was second in my class. I excelled in military science. That was my minor, and I think I got all A's. I liked that. The guy who was the honor graduate just ahead of me chose infantry. Well, we didn't think anybody in your right mind would want to be an infantry officer. But my branch did not have a basic officer course then. So when I graduated, I went on active duty on April Fool's Day, April 1st, 1971. I went to Fort Benning, and I was trained to be an infantry platoon leader. So I'm thinking, uh-oh, I'm going to Vietnam. Then my branch got involved, and they took me out to Fort Huachuca and put me in a, I think it was a 12-week military intelligence training program where we learned how to be counterintelligence agents, among other things. From there, I was doing an assignment out in Southern California, plainclothes assignment, and I found out about modern pentathlon, got my commander to release me, to get me orders to come down here to Fort Sam for a 90-day tryout. At that time, you had to, you got 90 days to run and swim to a certain standard. If you made those times, then you got to train in horseback riding, fencing, and shooting. So I made the times, 
and began training and was pretty successful. And you stayed then your entire time? Most of my military career on active duty, I was only on active duty for six years, was here at Fort Sam. When I left here, that's when I got into the Guard and Reserve and eventually retired from the Iowa Army National Guard, mm -hmm. where I was the state physical fitness officer. And as you were in active duty and, and continued to be a Guard and Reserve, you continued to train and participate? Yeah, so I put, yeah, and I put 23 years in, in the military, but still always trained. I mainly ran just to stay in shape. Then when I did started doing pentathlon, you work so hard at doing those five sports, I made a vow that I would never get out of shape. I've looked at a lot of my contemporaries, they didn't do that. During the times when you were preparing for the Olympic Games, for the trials, what was your training regiment like? Five sports, and most people may not know what, what they, these are, but what was your regiment like? In the summertime down here, you know, it's hot and humid, so we have the horses. So the horses got preference in the summer that we rode early in the morning. We would have to be in the saddle at 7. And then we would train. It's a modified jumper course. So we would ride different courses, ride different horses. We did horse shows to improve our riding skills. We rode hunters and jumpers. So the morning started with a ride, and the ride probably lasts an hour, hour and 20 minutes. Then depending on your level, we would go to the swimming pool and swim. After that, in the afternoon, there would be a fencing lesson or round-robin fencing with the other competitors. Be at the shooting range for an hour and run late in the afternoon. So we didn't do all five sports every day, but a lot of days. I remember getting up, being on a horse at 7, and not being done training in the fencing cell until 8 or 9 at night. Wow. So they were long days, but it was something that the guys that were here liked it. I mean, we loved it. I mean, that was what we wanted to do. How many guys were in the team? Well, back then, because the military had the draft, we had a lot of guys training. They don't have nearly as many training today as they did back then. So we would have, oh, 30, 40 guys at the training center all the time, officers and enlisted. Mm -hmm. And they were from all the services. There was Marines, mainly Army, Navy, and there were several Air Force participants as well. Only men, I presume? I have no. to ask. <laughs> Um, the Lady Modern Pentathlon started in somewhere, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s. In fact, one of the girls was on, Sharon Sander, who was a good lady triathlete, mm -hmm. was on the Olympic team, I think, somewhere early 90s. She made the team. So men compete against men and the women compete. It's not combined. It's ladies to ladies and men to men. But both are Olympic sports. And how many years did you do that kind of an intense training every day? From 1972 up until 1980. Eight years. Well, I had a break in there, so I would say it's probably six years of training. What is your training regiment like now? I'll be 70 in uh, August, so I'm competing as a 70-year-old this year. 